Bonjour, welcome to this week's ATP podcast, the final of the three presented from Paris at the French Championships Roland Garros. I'm Chris Bowers, sitting high up in the court Philippe Chatrier, and I'm delighted to be joined by a man who reached the fourth round here in the singles in 1997 and won the career Grand Slam in both men's doubles and mixed doubles. In addition, he claimed two tour finals trophies and four titles in singles. Plus, he was a singles semi-finalist at the Australian Open. I'm alongside the legendary Australian Mark Woodford. Mark, delighted to be joined by you. Have you had a good fortnight here? I have. You know, this event here at Roland Garros, and I've, I've had the joy, probably just like you, Chris, continually to be mesmerized by this great champion, Rafa Nadal. Uh, to, to witness it year after year, he can it just continues to defy uh, like this. I, I think sometimes I doubt whether he, can he do 10, 11, 12? I mean, it's going to come to an end at some stage, but it, it's just simply amazing. It takes my breath away. What makes him so good? I mean, if we can just get into the nitty gritty of why is Nadal always here? What is that? What is it about him that is special? Look, if you, if you, uh, I guess we break it down, you know, the physical side and the mental side. I mean, early on in, in his youth, I think he wins both the physical battle. Um, and then there's, I think, that period in the middle of these 14 victories that it's, it has been a, a, the, the com- combination of physical and mental. I feel like the last couple of years he, he has won the mental battle. Um, today, I think it was a, a real mental challenge because he, he was physically asked so many questions from the fourth round against FAA, uh, the quarterfinals, the, the semifinals, all of those matches, the accumulation of court time. So you, you, I normally would doubt, can he front up? How is he going to be for the final when he's playing someone that is, what, 13 years younger? And he came out of the blocks fast um, and... Just when Rude, it looked that we had some glimpses in the second set, um, he, he snatches them away, he erases it, and he wins that mental battle. Um, I mean, it was a, a capitulation, but as Casper said in, uh, in his uh, chat um, on the dais there, that he's not, it's not unusual. He, he is one of many that have suffered the same fate. Rafa is um, just exceptional. I mean, I see patterns of play. I was seeing them in this final where even, say, three or four strokes before the point ends, you know Nadal's going to win this point (laughs) because the opponent drops the ball slightly short or they they throw in a slice that they didn't need to. And you just think, right, Nadal has got this. It may take him another two, three, four shots to finish the point. But there comes a, a moment where unless Nadal makes a mistake the opponent is not going to get out of jail. Mm. Coming from, from, from Spain, so obviously growing up on, on clay courts, um, and the way he, he has cast a long shadow over the rest of the, the Spanish contingent for, I mean, throughout his reign here, here at Roland Garros. They try to play their game, and he, he continually beats them, right? Um, I think he asks so many questions of... Uh, you know, players different the way that they all try to play against him, and it's that that mental challenge. It's a physical challenge as well because they they it's really difficult if they um, are unable to sustain that level of play. Because as soon as your level drops, just uh, you know, if it's if it's a game, he just pounces on you. Um, 
Rude was winning, you know, early on. The, the points that lasted four shots or less, and, and the stats show in the end, I mean, there was nothing There was nothing in Rude's game that was really operating. So he just has that ability to, to shut you down. And, and he really forced Kasper Rude into, as you say, you can see three or four shots time. You're not going to win the point. Um, but, you, you know, it's a... It's just this pattern. It's, uh, he has all of the answers. The great awareness. Okay, so he's won 14 Roland Garros titles. He's won eight others. Yep. Two Wimbledons, two Australian Opens, four US Opens. When you see him in the form that he's been in this fortnight and at other Roland Garroses, should he have actually won more? Or is it just that he plays his best tennis because of the feel of the clay under his feet? Yeah, I think I think here he he feels like that this is where he can get that combination. He can combine, um, you, you know, the, the physical aspect. Because um, we've uh, seen Djokovic take him apart in at least one Australian Open final. Yeah, exactly. I think we, uh, you know, under pressure, you, you, everyone has like a default mode, and for Rafa, it is to you know take that step back uh, on clay courts. It's such a big arena. Um, it, it, I think it it helps him. Look, he's he's not getting any faster. That, this is what I find amazing. He's getting older. You know, is he actually improving? Well, he always says the reason I play tennis is I want to get better every day. And it's quite amazing at thirty six that what is he working on? <laughs> he's not. I don't think he's any faster at all. So I. Um, you know these the, the the way that these guys are trying to play. I, I look. I think it worked out well for him. And you have always have to have this, uh, you know, some some fortunate uh, uh, results with the draw. And he got lucky with Zverev's uh, injury in the semis. Zverev just at a time when I felt I think, and I think you you were along uh, with me, feeling that Zverev was maybe taking over that match. Well, I felt it was like last year's semi-final against Djokovic, where Djokovic was clearly in for the long haul. And having got into the fourth hour, I think Sverev was starting to look comfortable. But the fact is, we don't know whether Sverev would yeah. have won. And Nadal has this ability, even when his back's to the wall, to find something special. Yep. And I, I was fearful of the Alcaraz, the potential of if... If Rafa survives against Djokovic in that fourth, uh, in the quarterfinals to face maybe Alcaraz, because I, I find him to be so fearless. He's already picked up several victories over over Rafa. Um, he, he, he I, 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 and we'll never know now uh, for the moment. Um, th- those questions maybe will be answered at, a, at another time. And inevitably, the question of the greatest of all time will come up. In terms of Grand Slam singles titles, Nadal has 22, Federer has 20, Djokovic has 20. That period of six months where they were all on 20 lasted for the second half of last year, from Wimbledon to when Nadal won his 21st at the Australian. On that basis, Nadal is ahead of the other two. Yep. But is it... Is that the only fair measuring stick for the greatest of all time? Or are there lots of other elements, criteria that we just have to factor in as well, which means it's less clear cut? Well, if I can, I'm going to throw one back at you then. So, I, But for me, the accumulation of Grand Slams is uh, the, the gauge. And at the moment, with 22 now, I feel he deserves the honour of being called greatest of all time. I think there is more to be played. 
out in this book of greatest of all time. There'll be maybe a couple of more chapters. But we saw last year Djokovic had that opportunity to win the calendar Grand Slam. How does that compare if he was able to clinch that but didn't, doesn't end up with the most Grand Slams? Where does, where does that you know, line get drawn? Yeah, it's a, very, it's a very good point. And do we not count factors like uh, star appeal, like how m- much you expand tennis by just taking it to a different constituency, the way Federer, Nadal and Djokovic have all done? In the in the same generation, uh, it, it's quite quite incredible. I, I, I certainly, for me, felt last year if Djokovic had had won that that one final match, but therein lies how how, how great uh, an accomplishment achieving a calendar Grand Slam can be. Even someone like Djokovic, you know, he he really suffered with with nerves uh, in that final with Medvedev. Um, that for me would have would have set him apart from Roger and Rafa. But now that that hasn't, that's not into play, I think it, the default is the highest amount of Grand Slams. And, and at the moment, Rafa, for me, is the greatest of all time. One quick word on Nadal. He came into this tournament complaining of uh, severe foot pain. He said, the last three months and a half for me, the only thing I can say is that they haven't been easy. If we can't find a small solution or an improvement, then it's becoming super difficult for me to carry on. He obviously gets up for Roland Garros. There is something about this place that brings out the best in him. Do you think we are now nearing the end of the Nadal years? If I had been in his shoes, I'd, I, I, th- I thought this last year. What, what a way on, on 13 titles to maybe uh, that's it for me. It's a record that will, in our lifetime, won't be touched. Um, I'd rather him go out on a winning note than have to see him return to Roland Garros and suffer a loss. So if he takes a break now and then later this year says, right, I've reassessed my life, um, the next stage begins now, I'm not playing professional tennis again, you would be happy for him? I, I'd be happy for him. Even if he continued playing the other slams, but don't, you know... Hang it up here at Roland Garros. Even um, I, I just um, he he he. I, I mean, we're, I've had the privilege of being here for every one of those title uh, runs, and it, it is just I, I don't I I really struggle to have the words to describe you, you know this achievement. It is it is a phenomenal achievement, and he's got tremendous support. You can probably hear some of the klaxons in the background as his fans. But, but he did suffer, obviously, in, yes. the, in, in the preparation for this year's uh, tournament. This is um, unusual for him not to have played frequently. Generally, he plays four or five tournaments, uh, only playing a handful this year. Um, but I think it says a lot about his belief here at Roland Garros. And who knows what painkillers he's having to take where... If he takes too many of them, his ultimate health might be slightly compromised. So that might be a factor in terms of the second half of his life. You know, he's 36. He, he can expect to be well, approaching the halfway point and he, he'll want to be sort of in decent shape. Quality of life. Yeah, exactly. in, in later years. Yeah. yeah. Tell me where you think Casper Ruud is at the end of this fortnight. Hmm. I, you know, you can look back at those results over the last couple of years and, you know, probably the Prince of, of Clay playing against the King of Clay today. Um, I, I think it shows the, the gap. Um, 
but he will have learnt a, a tremendous amount. This is the first time that he's he's reached this juncture. It was the first time, you know, reaching quarterfinals and semifinals. So, you know, he's discovering a lot about himself. Um, he has the game to, you know, maybe one day loft the trophy as long as there is Rafa out of the picture. I think whilst they're very similar in their game styles, um, he would have to redline from the beginning of the match almost to the end. Just have one of those days where it's just everything is landing in um, if he was playing against someone like uh, Rafa. But, I mean, he could find himself in a final next year or in two, three, four years against a Zverev, against a Tsitsipas, against an Alcaraz. Do you think he has learned enough from this that he is on the right lines to becoming a Roland Garros champion one day? Well, look, it's a step up, isn't it? Because the victories that he's enjoyed eight tournaments have come at 250 levels and they're very different from uh, a thousand series uh, master series where everyone is playing at that 250 level there's there's only limited um, uh, top 20 players that are competing at those events so you know he, he has to gradually make that step up um, I, I do believe that you know on clay he exhibits the, the necessary features, um, you know, to go deep and, and, and really do contend for a, a title like this. Great patience. I mean, there's explosiveness in his game um, from, from the backcourt as well. Um, and, and he shows a willingness to actually move forward. Love it. Yeah, he's, he's got a very good game here. Um, he will have learnt from the master today's official program at Roland Garros was the master and the student. He called himself the student. He said, you know, he's been to the Nadal Academy. I mean, it's important that he actually can build on this. And I wonder whether what you're implying is that he actually needs to put effort into 500 and 1000 level tournaments so that he actually has more to fall back on uh, if he gets into another Grand Slam final. Exactly, exactly. And, and just around the corner, and I'm not trying to, to jump ahead, but we now move on to grass. Casper last year, I actually commentated his match at Wimbledon. Uh, he was all at sea. Um, it was Jordan Thompson at uh, first round that he lost to. Um, it was a very messy uh, standard of tennis, of, of someone who is just not comfortable on grass. One of our majors, there's only four of them, but one of them is on grass. And, and I think, uh, you know, if, if he is to be someone that is continually remains in the top 10 uh, and uh, has appeal, you know, to worldwide tennis audiences, he, he's going to have to try and translate his game. And, and it's only just keep putting himself on that surface. So whether, whether he's going to play any lead-up tournaments, we, we'll, we'll see. But his game shouldn't be that difficult to translate. Um, he's so fast. He's strong. Uh, that th- th- there are elements that I, I, I think he can be a a player that will be in the second week. I'm not saying that he's going to be, you know, in the semis or the final, but I, I believe that he can build upon this. And so that, for me, the next month of tennis, if he can reach the quarterfinals, possibly, I think that is the superb result. And then to build further as he goes on to the U.S. hard courts. I must just ask you. Do you think we've got two tournaments here in the sense that it's the second year where we've had the official night sessions? Right. They tend to start at about quarter to nine in the evening. Do you feel the conditions at night 
are sufficiently different from the daytime conditions that actually we do have almost like two different surfaces here. Well, you, th- you think the last couple of years as well, Chris, I don't think the weather has been overly kind to the French, to Parisians. Um, the, the players may have enjoyed the conditions because it hasn't been too you know, hot, overly warm. Yeah, only two really warm days this year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the the conditions from day to night haven't been uh, hugely different. But I think if we if we end up with some of the day sessions where it's been extremely hot, um, there there is a, a a bit of a change. But look, someone like Rafa, I mean, we've it's been a talking point, you know, all tournament long since the roof has come into play and they've added these night sessions. It is different. And we, we've doubted. We're like, is this going to have a negative effect? He has answered every one of those challenges. Yeah, because one of the best finals he ever played was the one on that very cold October afternoon when he right. beat Djokovic for the loss of seven games. Yeah. Played out of his skin. Absolutely. Oh yes, I don't like playing. I prefer to play at during the day. I don't want to play at night, but he can play. He can play. He can have his preference, but yeah. he can do it whatever the conditions. Absolutely. Plenty more still to come on the ATP podcast, including the views of the former world number two Alex Carreca on Carlos Alcaraz, and we'll hear from the history man from El Salvador, the newly crowned Roland Garros doubles champion Marcelo Arevalo. Next, we'll discuss some of the other main talking points from the past two weeks, including getting Mark's thoughts on the women's singles champion, Iga Sviantec. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Mark Woodford is still with me, Chris Bowers. Mark, when we look back on the rest of the men's singles, it's hard to know where else to start than Sasha Sverev and that awful tumble he took, just as his match against Nadal was looking so, so interesting, horrendous on so many fronts. It was horrifying, uh, as, uh, calling that match uh, at the time. And I didn't see it happen live. I was just looking down at my notes. Uh, and then I heard the crowd, uh, along with the cries from Zverev, and to see him in such agony grasping at, at his ankle. You know, Chris, I, I thought at the time he was actually starting to look the better player. I think he'd, he'd uh, resurrected himself after dropping that first set. And the numerous breaks of serve that went in the in set two, he was able to remain composed, and I, and I felt like that he was starting to look stronger physically. And I, I I thought if he could win this second set, boy, there's an opportunity for Zverev that he could just clear out in sets three and four. Wasn't to be. It was so tragic. My heart went out to him. I, I suffered a similar fate back in '91. Uh, my ankle ligaments, uh, um, you know, twisted in a very similar manner. So I know that if he has snapped those ligaments, it's going to be at least six months out of the game. Well, Sasha Sverev has posted the following on his Instagram page: "Hey guys, I'm now on my way back home. Based on the first medical checks, it looks like I have torn several lateral ligaments in my right foot." I will be flying to Germany on Monday to make further examinations and to determine the best and quickest way for me to recover. I want to thank everyone all over the world for the kind messages that I've received since the semi-final. Your support means a lot to me right now. Mark, as somebody who's been through this kind of injury, what does that brief message before he's got the full medical picture tell us, do you think? Yeah, there's going to be an extended stay, no matter what, whether he follows... um uh, doctors' orders of perhaps going under the knife and having surgery. Um, it, it sounds like to me that he will, uh, 
you know, consult with some surgeons back in Germany um, before that decision is made. Um, but regardless, I, if, if it is surgery, I, for me, I think it'll be a, at least a six-month period that he'll be out. Um, potentially, if, um, if they're not all broken, those, those ankle ligaments, maybe it's a shorter period of time. Um, for me, as soon as, as, soon as I had uh, the uh, knowledge that er- my ankle ligaments were broken, um, that surgery was the preferred option, um, so that they could repair and that, that I knew down the track, as it was explained to me, that I could have that confidence that my ankle, my right foot, would stabilise when I was playing on different surfaces. The other losing semi-finalist was Marin Cilic. He had a really good tournament. He absolutely struck gold in the fourth round against Daniel Medvedev and he struck gold in the final set tie-break against Andrei Rublev. Slightly running out of gas come the semi-final against Rude, but still a good tournament. And he's only the fifth active men's player after Djokovic, Nadal, Federer and Murray to have reached the semi-finals of all four majors. That's quite an achievement. It's a, it is a heck of a, an achievement. And I think you're right that he, he just seemed to uh, lose his fitness to a certain extent. Uh, all tournament long, the serve had been shining. He struck the most aces of the four semi-finalists. Uh, the forehand was working, getting around and plus one, because that seems to be the vogue way of playing these days in men's tennis, right? Uh, serve and forehand. But he also, he was finding the corners of the court for a set in the early stages of set two, but it was the slow and steady play of Casper uh, Ruud that finally caught up with him. We're going to now move on to the real breakthrough player. Not so much of this tournament, although getting to the quarterfinals is no mean achievement, but of this particular year, and that is Carlos Alcaraz. I spoke to a man who was twice a runner-up at Roland Garros, the former world number two, Alex Karecha, and started by asking him what Alcaraz will have learned by getting to the quarterfinals. Well, I'm sure he learned a lot, uh, mainly that this is a tournament where you don't need to go 100% every single point till the you know till the end because sometimes you need to measure your power as well i think he will learn that best of 5 it's a different story because you need to be very patient as well and that sometimes you will play not your best but you will end up winning anyway and also that the conditions here at Roland Garros change dramatically every day. So this is something also to know that not every day you're going to feel great on the court, but no matter how you need to find a solution. So I think I'm sure that for him it was a great tournament and he's going to be ready for the future and for the next slams. There's a sort of irony that he lost to Sverev, who took so long himself to get used to the best of five set format. Did you see some similarities between some of the early problems Sverev had and where Carlos Alcaraz still has to learn things? Well, everybody has his own game, you know, and uh, I feel like Sverev, you know, he could have just won the US Open a couple of years ago. He was a couple of points away, so it would have been like away all this story about him but unfortunately for him he couldn't make it and I think they're different you know because uh, Carlos is very explosive and he's just going for it a lot and it's one the kind of player that he's ready like to be in the big stages and I think Sasha too I mean we'll see but I believe Alcaraz this tournament in a way it can be very good for him to understand what's to play a best of five especially on clay do you remember what your big message was that you learned as you came to terms with the best of five set format? 
Well, basically that uh, you need to be there, like hanging in there no matter what. I mean, that uh, the matches are very long and you can be playing very good and all of a sudden you don't know why your opponent just relieves himself and, and starts to play more aggressive and, and it's difficult to control that. Uh, also that it might rain and you can stop the match you know and one day you play 11 a.m. and another day you play 8 p.m. in the afternoon so a lot of variation a lot of things that you need to accept you need to adjust and this is for me the most important thing is also you play different opponents you play left you play two-handed backhand you play one-handed backhand it's always something that is going to be like not affecting you but it's going to be like you need to understand that that day is going to be totally different than a couple of days before and this is something that I think you should know when you come to Paris. It was interesting that after the Alcaraz Zverev match, we had Djokovic Nadal, where Nadal won this not just on his better form on the day, but because he didn't let up his focus all the way through. He was absolutely constant. Do you think that is something that uh, Carlitos will look at and say, the master is teaching me? Well, Rafa is teaching everyone, not just Carlos. I think. He's dealing with the situations very good. Uh, I felt like the match was fantastic. I mean, both of them were like from the very first point till the end, like so focused on the court, like hitting the ball as hard as they could, uh, moving well, great attitude. And it was just one has to win. And it was Rafa because probably, you know, at the end, best of five on clay. Only only Novak did it twice and, and Soderlin but no one else, so that means that it's nearly an impossible task, you know. So I, I think Rafa, he knows perfectly what he needs to do on clay. He reads the game very well, he's very smart, he knows the surface perfectly, and he grew up on that, and he's very comfortable on clay. And you were the first generation of the, the Spanish model. You, Carlos Moir, Sergio Bruguera, a little before you. Do you think the Spanish model for training youngsters is still well set to generate a new generation not just a Carlos Alcaraz but a whole generation of top 100 Spanish players men and women I mean now we know that uh, tennis has changed and everybody uh, is playing very fast but still like if you see the amount of coaches that we have in the men's and in the women's tour that means that they believe and they trust that our system still works and on top of everything is that you you're going to work like crazy you're going to give you 100% every day you're going to improve your game no matter what, no matter your ranking is and, and I think, you know we have so many Spanish players on, on, the, on the game, men and women so I do feel like we are a, a country where we do believe that we, we, we know what we're doing and, and we love the game and we have a passion for our sport and this is very important and, and we live just thinking to be the best we can and this is I think you should, it should be your goal and the weather is so good because you can play outdoors most of the year the weather is very good uh, yeah we've got does that make a difference it does a little bit yes of course I mean uh, I mean not just for practice I mean in your spirit the way you are the way you you behave you know you're more open you're more happy you know I mean the weather also helps when you are in a place where it's like you know cloudy and raining and, and dark it's, I think it's more difficult, but also the thing is like we are happy from what we're doing, you know, and this is, I think, it's key to succeed. 
Mark Woodford, Alex Karecha saying there that Alcaraz needs to learn that he doesn't need to go for every shot on this surface. But we'll, we'll hear a bit later in the show. His coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero, is teaching Carlos to be aggressive in the tight and tense moments. What do you think his best strategy is in best of five sets on clay? Well, it, it kind of breaks with the tradition of that Spanish style of play. Patience. Um, you know, they're very strong on the baseline. They, they like to extend the rallies. They build some rhythm. And that's what Alcaraz actually, uh, he, he steps out of that shadow of um, past Spanish greats. He, he does keep the point short and he, he, he takes away rhythm from other players. Um, look, I, I, I think what, he's so exciting to watch. Um, uh, he, he, I go back to 12 months ago at Wimbledon and uh, floating by his court, he was serving volleying. And I had a word to Juan Carlos as well and said, you know, is is he doing that of his own accord or is that something that you're asking of him? And he said, no, I, yes, I would love to see him do this first and second serves, but he wants to do it. He, he actually loves playing at net. Um, so I'm, I'm all for him, the way that he's approaching his tennis. On the clay, I think in the end, he maybe could have shown a bit, a bit more patience. But, you know, you just can't take away that ability to or, or desire for him to finish those points quickly. It's, it's just a fine balance. And I think he will learn a lot more about himself. This was the one, the one area at Grand Slam play, Grand Slam level, I should say, playing five sets, how to manage the highs and lows um, when you're playing an extended um, you know, format. We'll come back to Alcaraz later in the podcast, but just want to pick up on a couple of other quarterfinalists. Holger Rune. We weren't expecting him to break through this quickly, but he took out Tsitsipas, and despite an awful start against Kaspar Ruud, he really battled away, especially winning that second set. Where do you think this has left him? <laughs> Great for Danish tennis, but more importantly, Scandinavian tennis. It's kind of resurrected with, um, with, with Kaspar you know, making it through uh, as well. But uh, look, I, I was impressed with uh, Holger Una. I, I wasn't expecting him to play at that level. Sometimes the, the, the younger guys, when they do come out on tour, the first 12 months, you, you know, it's almost like a, a free pass, so to speak, because the other players all of a sudden are like, how does he play? We've got to work out, you know, what to do against him. What are his strengths and weaknesses? But he had a major breakthrough early in the season, winning Munich, taking out Sasha Zverev in the first round. And, and look, it was handy that he got a, a, a default midway through that first set. But look, uh, I, I mean, he's a, a bright talent. Has a very positive attitude. I think he, he uh, trusts himself. Um, he got into a bit of a, a spat there with Kaspar Ruud in that um, quarterfinal match. But look, uh, he, he's young. And I think he's going to learn, uh, you know, so much from the experience of playing here at Roland Garros. I was going to ask you, he's a feisty young man. He is. He is, is he a feisty. bit too feisty? I, I thought he, he overdid it with asking the chair umpire to keep checking the marks um, uh, in that particular match with Casper. With and then, of course, when Casper when did have a word with him and, and said, you know, do you want every mark to be checked? It just... Uh, and especially the handshake at the end. I thought that was a little unnecessary. There was a lot of other, uh, well, external stuff that went on in the locker room, so to speak, afterwards. Uh, we'll never know probably the, the true story there. Um, but look, uh, based on Wozniacki, might have inspired you know, this, this young fella. Um, uh, 
you know, that to, to wave the flag of, of Denmark. And, you, you know, he, again, the Scandinavians in, historically have been kind of more of a, a reactive baseline type of player on the male side. And this young man, he, he loves to come forward as well. He likes to keep the point short. So I'm all for that. You know how much I love to see someone who gets to the net and goes hunting for that volley. Yeah, from, in tennis terms, he's, he's great, isn't he? He's, he's a really great addition. And I must just mention Andre Rublev, who, OK, he lost another quarterfinal in a major. He's never gone beyond the quarters. That was his fifth. But for me, he came out of this with great credit because he was two sets to one down against Chilich. He looked to be getting down on himself, which he seems to be quite good at doing. And yet he knuckled down. He won the fourth set. He held his own in the fifth set and only lost it because Chilich just went on the most remarkable run of redlining in the final set tiebreak. But I hope Rublev can hold his head up high from this. I hate to say it, but I I feel like asking the question was Andre Rublev in this tournament and I, and I say that from the from the side of the the spotlight was placed on so many other players and generally one of the if you're a marquee name which obviously Andre is on this surface to fly under the radar it's a bit of a bonus but I feel like just no one was really speaking about his his chances the emphasis was on, on Djokovic and uh, his return to form. Uh, of course, Alcaraz, can he um, you, you know, snatch it away from, uh, from Rafa and from Novak? And, and of course, we've got Zverev you know, waving the flag and saying that I'm still here. Medvedev's return to, the, to tennis after being out for most of the clay court season. I feel like it, Riblev got lost so much. And, uh, but was I, this a golden opportunity for him? W- yeah, opportunity. Um, and, and I think normal circumstances on this surface, I would have expected him to, you know, beat Marin Cilic. But again, look at look at the stats that Marin Cilic was playing throughout this tournament. He was winning matches very easy early on in the in the tournament. By the time that he arrived at, at Rublev, look, it was a, a long encounter for sure, but the weapons were winning for Marin Cilic. And just a word about Djokovic, you mentioned him then. Where is he left after this? Because he seemed to be fresh. He's playing his fifth clay court tournament, going into his quarterfinal against Nadal. More people was, seemed to be saying that Djokovic would win. And yet he didn't seem to show up against Nadal. <laughs> and I was one of them. So, so add me to that list. I, I thought to the, the form that he showed uh, coming into this year's tournament, um, you, you know, he deserved that number one seeding. Um, and the form as well. The Warrior came out in that first round against Nishioka. Uh, when Nishioka arrived with a bit of attitude and was, you know, cheering the fact that he could stick with Novak early in the first set. But then Novak let him know who was the boss. I didn't think the Warrior, the competitor, turned up necessarily against Jokov, against Rafa Nadal in the quarterfinal match. Um, that, that, you know, really... Well, was it the match of the tournament? I mean, given those two gladiators facing off in the quarterfinals, um, he had the opportunity after getting back uh, to a set apiece, strangely losing serve early in the third set and the momentum just disappeared uh, big time. Got to remember that Novak hasn't played a five-set match and a lengthy um, singles at Grand Slam level since the US Open um, last September. The semi-final against Zverev. Yeah. So, you know, maybe his fitness 
he, he played well, but what, a few tournaments leading into this year's Roland Garros. His fitness wasn't great at the start. Um, he, he's gradually built up. But look, Grand Slam play, well, you know that uh, five sets is, is a different beast altogether. So, um, look, he lost to, to Rafa. I think, uh, you know, maybe that's one player that he might find somewhat acceptable. But um, I, I think you've got to be wary of Novak as we head to the grass court season. Absolutely. Uh, just a quick look at some of the other main draws. We have to mention Iga Sviontek. I mean, what a run she's having. 35 matches unbeaten. That's the same number that Venus Williams was on when she won Wimbledon, US Open and Olympic gold in 2000. It's a phenomenal run uh, and beating Coco Goff in a rather disappointing final. Uh, yeah, ex- maybe the, there's experience and I'd say experience. She, she hasn't been around for winning these Grand Slams um, uh, for, for years and years. It's still very fresh for, for Iga Sviontek, but... Coco Goff was a little unexpected, I think, to, to reach that final. I think it, it showed that maybe she has a bit more to work on her game. It's not quite as complete as Schwantek, but, I mean, boy, at the moment, um, she's just walloping, galloping through her matches. And, you know, she's belting the, the other ladies with, you know, her game. I mean, it's so aggressive. She's super aggressive from the beginning until the end. She's willing to to bet on herself and she is coming up trumps. And you know her forehand was registered as being, on average, a, a little quicker than Nadal's. It wouldn't surprise me with uh, you know, how swiftly she is uh, going through these matches. And uh, maybe in the end, we, we look back at the, the night sessions here at Roland Garros as well. Um, they had one of the, the ladies playing a, a, a night session. That match went for two hours. It's a risk if you put Schwantek out there. She is a marquee name and she probably does deserve to be featured in one of those matches. But it's a risk for Roland Garros because the matches are, are lasting about an hour. That is the devastating form that she displays. Well, the men's doubles, which is best of three sets, the final went over three hours. But we had a bit of history <laughs> with the first we ever did. player from El Salvador. Uh, that's Marcelo Arevalo and Jean-Julien Roger winning the men's doubles, beating Dodik and Austin Krajicek in the final. Wonderful scenes at the end as Arevalo just delighted in El Salvador's first ever Grand Slam title. I mean, it was just wonderful to watch, especially as El Salvador translates into English as the saviour. They saved three championship points in the second set tie... Uh, well, not even the second set tie break, at 6-5. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, an amazing match. Three hours of total drama. They uh, were the, the pair that never got to see uh, a break point until midway through the third set. Um, and how is that? You, you know, four, he's 31 years of age. He's won four titles in his career. They haven't been high-level tournaments. He's got involved in this partnership with Julian Roger, who is uh, loads of experience. They help each other. They're so positive uh, around each other on the court. But your fifth title that you win is a Grand Slam. I mean, uh, I, I, I think uh, El Salvador... Uh, will be jumping up and down, just like uh, Marcelo Arevalo was doing for the majority of that match. Uh, you know, to see both of them out on the court during the presentation, holding their sons, uh, thanking their wives and their team, it just shows that it's, you, you just don't achieve its success uh, on your own. You, you do need support, and they have plenty of support around both of them. And it was a Songa-like celebration, wasn't it, from Arevalo? Because he just... 
stood stunned at the end when they won it and then hugged his opponent, uh, hugged his partner, <laughs> went and shook hands. And then he bounced around and was punching the air like you know, a goal scorer in the World Cup final. Look, he... Um... He was brilliant out there. He hit the ground uh, several times. He was able to bounce back up and keep his team alive in some crucial plays. Uh, and the only time that his team held serve to love was that final game when he was under a lot of pressure. Uh, he was probably happy to see his partner knock off a few volleys, but it was the only time that they held serve to love throughout the whole match. Fantastic effort. Well, afterwards, I spoke to Marcelo about his historic achievement. Well, it was uh, an amazing feeling. It was, uh, uh, I don't think uh, words can describe uh, after we won the last point. Uh, This is a dream come true, and uh, this is why uh, we worked so many years uh, since I was a little kid, since I grabbed my first racket when I was six, uh, since my dad was uh, taking me to the Miami Open when he used to be called the Lipton, and that was my first tournament as a, as a fan, as a spectator. I think I was like 10, and it seems too much. It seems too big, you know, and and, and I never thought I, I would be able to, to compete at that level when I was an spectator, and, and it's amazing that uh, I went so far, and, and now I can say that I'm, I'm a Grand Slam champion. You say it's a dream come true. Do you remember dreaming of playing at Roland Garros or at other big tournaments? Because we know that kids do that when they are excited about a sport they're into. Yeah, I always dream about it uh, to play a Grand Slam, you know. I think to win a Grand Slam was uh, just out of my mind, you know. It's, It's crazy, but once you start winning matches and, and, and you start like building your ranking up, uh, it crosses your mind, you know, like I might win a Grand Slam, but uh, the competition is, is just so high, it's just uh, so hard that uh, you never know, you know, like uh, in this tournament, in the second round, we were uh, 6-2, 4-1 down and we were able to to turn that match around and and, and now after like uh, two weeks, we, we are uh, Grand Slam champions. El Salvador is not known as a country for tennis. It's really your family because your elder brother Rafael played Roger Federer at the Beijing Olympics. What can your win do to promote tennis in your country? I think, uh, honestly, it will make a huge impact because uh, my brother is the one that started all this impact uh, when he started uh, winning as a junior player. He was top 10 in juniors. Uh, he won a couple uh, challengers and, and, and futures, and um, he was at the Olympics. I, I, actually, he's the he's the only player that uh, was uh, able to play uh, Olympics in in tennis. Uh, I still need to to reach that goal. That's one of my goals: uh, be a, an Olympic player. And I really wish, I really hope, uh, I desire to make a huge impact uh, for the kids in my in my country uh, to get involved. In a sport to get out of the of the gangs, we have a lot of uh, uh, criminal problems in our country, uh, which I think our president now is is doing much better. Our country has improved, and now uh, I can tell everyone that uh, it's really safe to go to El Salvador. Thanks for uh, like all the uh, 
effort that uh, our president uh, been doing in the last uh, couple years. But uh, yeah, we still have a couple of uh, problem uh, with with gangs, and and I hope uh, this title uh, get those kids uh, to get involved in uh, in a sport, like uh, motivate them to get involved in tennis and in every sport. Have you talked to Yannick Noah at all? Because he has a charity in France about getting children from some of the most difficult and dangerous estates to play tennis as a way of getting themselves into a better position in life. Sounds like that's the kind of model that you're looking for for El Salvador. Yeah, I will really... Uh, I will be super happy to meet uh, Yannick. He's, uh, he's the best player in, uh, in France in, uh, in history. And it would be a pleasure for me to, to meet him, to talk about this uh, project and why not share some uh, ideas and, and maybe he can help me to, to start something new in, uh, in El Salvador. I want to start a foundation. And I think this is a right moment. This is the big moment to, to give back to my people, to my country, to those kids, uh, to help them in, uh, to go in the, in the right way. And, and I really want to do it and I'm going to do it. Finally, you have your own goals now. You're a Grand Slam champion. What do you want to achieve after this that will help the people from El Salvador to see you as not just a one-off champion, but as a multiple champion? Well, of course, uh, we want to keep uh, fighting as a team. Uh, 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 this doesn't end here. We win one, and I think the, uh, the human and as a players, as an athlete, we are like super competitive, and now... We won grand, one Grand Slam, and then we will want to win more. So my goal right now is uh, to keep uh, improving my tennis, uh, building our team up, and try to uh, to reach uh, to more finals and win more finals of a Grand Slam. And as one my one of my friends always tell me, uh, the end of uh, one mountain is uh, the start of a new one. So so now this is the end of one, and now we we start. Uh, the new path. That was Marcelo Arevalo. Mark, we just have to mention the mixed doubles because another scratch pairing does very well. First time winners in the mix, Wesley Kuhlhoff and Ina Shibahara. You have to feel very, very pleased for both of those honest professionals. Yeah, first time pairing. Uh, Wes Kuhlhoff has been starting to actually uh, post a lot of um, solid results in the men's doubles. Ranking is going up and uh, confidence starting to re- really bubble over. And, and of course, uh, you know, a, a wise selection, um, partnering up with uh, Shibahara, who actually has a, a big, one of the biggest serves that took me by surprise. I actually called that mixed doubles final and uh, a very pacey uh, first serve. And, and that just blends well for Kulov because he's very savvy around the net. Before we move on to the grass, our final word on the clay goes to the breakthrough player of this season, Carlos Alcaraz. If you were listening to us last week, you'll have heard this. I want to be Carlos Alcaraz and all the, the crowd, all the people to know that they are thinking of Carlos Alcaraz. One of the futures of the sport. When Carlos had his senior role, I personally thought that Carlos needs a top coach. Juan Carlos I saw in him a very different player than the others. Yes, last week, ATP Uncovered went behind the scenes with Carlos Alcaraz, his coach Juan Carlos Ferrero and his agent Albert Molina. And now in part two, we get to hear about the young Spaniard's hopes for the future, as well as what Rafael Nadal makes of him. 
everything changed for him. The quality of the practice, the intensity, and he came here and started to eat, uh, you know, like uh, a diet on the academy, and start to, you know, have to be on time all the time. So everything was, you know, very under control. I remember the first day when I'm living here in the academy, it was so tough. I train in the, in the morning, uh, fitness and tennis, and then in the afternoon as well. Empezamos en dos, uno, dale, venga. The beginning, you know, he was very used to practice just once a day, and physically he was doing not too much. Control la vuelta, control, bravo. The first position here, he was crying, you know, in the, in the exercise, so. How did you learn to be a hard worker? I mean, work. Yeah, yeah, work, 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 and uh, yeah, every, every day. So many firsts for him. His first ATP World Tour title in Umag, so made the quarterfinals a grand slam. When level. he got the, the good results in US Open, the match against Tsitsipas, all the people show more interest in Carlos. We have more media, obviously, all the newspapers has a lot of requests for interviews in all these things uh, out of the court. It's part of, uh, of your job, and uh, I'm getting used to that. It comes with the success that you have on the court. If you win matches, the press is going to come, and then you have to learn how to deal with all of this. Remembers me a lot of things uh, <laughs> than when I was a, a 17 or 18 years old kid. It's great to have uh, such a star from my country. Truly extraordinary achievement. Everybody here in Spain he was talking about the next Rafa Nadal and he was handled with all this pressure from three years ago. So, you know, he's ready for all the things that's going to come. Obviously, the most important thing is to keep the practice and, and try to do all the things that we need to do to improve his tennis. We try to make a balance between all the things. Congratulations, you're the champion. How does that feel? To win this tournament means, means a lot to me. I'm, I'm so excited right now. I'm so emotional. <laughs> How much do you see of yourself in, in Carlos? Everyone is different, uh, but uh, of course about mentality on the court. I'm trying to build uh, someone close that, uh, that I was on the court. Like calm and cold in an important moment, but at the same time uh, a winner. Some players that, that they give uh, his best at practice and not at the competitions, and uh, he is the opposite. He likes to go there and face people to compete. This is uh, something really important if you want to be one of the best. He feels the pressure, obviously. He feels the pressure. He likes to play in, the, in a big course, in the central course. And, and in this situation where he's playing against the best opponent possible, he likes it. Juan Carlos, he always told me that in the tough moments, play aggressive and go for it. A couple of years ago, when I was younger, I mean, in 13, 14 years old, I, I couldn't do that. I have uh, trust of the process and he's getting experience in every match that I'm playing. With Carlos, I talk to him a lot about uh, off the court. I think it's even more important than on the court. Let's say you practice for three hours and then 
what you do the rest of the days is very important to you know to eat well, rest well, seeing all of this uh, together in all in other players that uh, they were you know very high on the ranking is very important. He knows that he's good, very good at, at that time and uh, at that age, but uh, I'm pretty sure that he wants more. I want to be number one in the world. You have to think about tennis 24 hours in a, in a day, so I changed my life, let's say, to, to become a professional tennis player. But the more important thing for me is being the same person. It's very humble and very simple and very close from the people that he knows from a long time. And now that his life is changing for him, it's absolutely the same. I know that the, I'm playing well, I'm winning matches, uh, getting better ranking, the, the brand is coming up, but the, you know that I have to be humble, to, to be the same person and uh, still growing up. So much of what Alcaraz says has the fingerprints of Rafael Nadal about him. And Mark, to hear him talking about being humble, remaining the same person, really does reinforce the idea that as Nadal's career seems to near its end, there's a ready-made successor from Spain just waiting to do it all again. Yeah, most certainly. And I think they're uh, absolutely ecstatic. We know that there are some major competitions, probably led by Davis Cup, that uh, has uh, that Spanish involvement. The finals will be played uh, later this year as well in, in Malaga. They've got uh, some group stages held in Alicante. So, you know, they, they have to be overjoyed that um, that Rafa is still obviously playing to this level, but they have an heir apparent, and that's Carlos Alcaraz. How do you think his game's going to transfer to grass? You talked earlier on about serving and volley. Yeah. Oh, look, look I'm, I'm excited to see him play. This year, he has matured at a rapid rate. And that's something that I think is with, with his team, uh, led by Juan Carlos Ferrero, they haven't been that um, urgent about him having to achieve these, post these uh, great results. It's, it's like they'll just take their time. But this year, this season, he has accelerated quite quickly into the top 10. Um, I'm expecting him to be a, a really worthy contender on the grass. Um, I'm not sure of where he's exactly playing pre-Wimbledon. Uh, I hope he does you know, get to, to feel the grass under his feet. Um, but the way that grass plays these days, I think it's going to be more than suitable for him, especially if it is a, a dry summer. I think that's going to be more helpful for him. Um, yeah, I, I, I think watch out for Carlos Alcarez at SW19. Well, before that, we've got three weeks of grass court tournaments. We're back to the three-week gap, which yep. we lost last year because Roland Garros had to just go a week later. So it's good to have a, a slightly bigger grass court season. Six weeks of grass court season, if we count Newport, Rhode Island, the week yep. after Wimbledon. And this week, uh, Stuttgart sees the return of Nick Kyrgios. What do you make of Kyrgios? <laughs> he clearly makes a lot of his chances on grass. Um he was expected to play the clay court season, wasn't he? Um, uh, he? He declared that he would maybe make an appearance here at uh, uh, at least at Roland Garros. Elected at the last minute not to, um, and hopefully he's put in some serious preparation for the grass. Look, the way his game sets up, and uh, you know, I still think one of the most underrated shots in men's tennis, and I think more so on grass, is a backhand slice. It's not a winning shot. It doesn't wow people, but it actually can be have a devastating effect on some of the players. And I think with Kyrgios, you know, his ability with his hands behind the serve, the forehand, just his swagger, 
but also, you, you know, that backhand slice. He, he knows his way around a grass court, and I think, uh, you know, as long as he's fit, that's the only concern for me if Nick can be fit enough to play back-to-back matches. Well, we will see. The next few weeks will be fascinating. The tour moves on to grass from now. It's going to feel like a slightly strange grass court swing with some players excluded from entering Great Britain and, at least at this stage, no ranking points for Wimbledon. We'll be reviewing the first week of the grass in next week's podcast as well as looking forward to the 500-level tournaments at the Queen's Club in London and Halle in northern Germany. Thanks for being with us over our three weekends in Paris. It's now time to smell the grass. Enjoy the tennis and join us next week. From Mark Woodford and me, Chris Bowers, in Paris. Bye-bye.